each individual woman maybe needs someone to be curious enough about her case to look outside the box and start to work outside those public health lines in order to get her the best care. Hi, and welcome to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. We're Dr. Haley Nye and Kristen Cornett, your hosts and the creators of the online fertility platform, Tiny Feet. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. We appreciate you listening and we're super excited to be here with you today, helping you learn more about how to improve your health and your fertility. So Kristen and I started Tiny Feet just over a year ago now to offer couples a unique functional medicine approach for overcoming fertility struggles, conceiving successfully, and having beautiful, healthy babies. So we offer individualized consults that include functional lab testing and targeted natural therapies, as well as an online fertility assessment and online courses. So you can learn more about us and what we do on our website at tinyfeet.co. Speaking of online courses, we are ready to launch a comprehensive preconception preparation course at the end of the summer called Fertile in Five Masterclass. So this course is going to walk you through a five-step functional medicine program to help you boost egg quality, conceive faster, and bring home a healthy baby. So throughout this course, we're going to be teaching you about essential lab tests and health considerations to discuss with your doctor, a complete fertility nutrition plan with recipes to get you started, a comprehensive supplement protocol for preconception, pregnancy, and breastfeeding, how to detox your environment to support hormone balance and baby's development, and specific lifestyle changes that you can get, that can help you get and stay pregnant. So we're gonna be launching this course first to our email list with special pricing and specific bonuses that you won't be able to get anywhere else. So if you're not on our list, you can join by downloading our free Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant quiz. So you may have heard us uh, mention this quiz in the past. We've talked about it a lot. We actually have a full podcast episode Um, that's based off of this quiz. So it's pretty cool. And you can find the link to the quiz in the podcast description. So the quiz is a great way to help you decide whether the Fertile in Five Masterclass will be a good fit for you. Um, It helps you identify health symptoms that may interfere with your fertility and, and the health of your pregnancy. And then the course will give you the tools that you need to help Uh, resolve those symptoms and get your baby or your body baby ready. So once again, you can find the link to the download this quiz in the episode description notes, and you can also find it on our homepage uh, on our website at tinyfeet.co. Okay, so let's jump into today's episode. You're listening to episode 36, where we're interviewing naturopathic doctor, researcher, and women's health expert, Dr. Jordan Robertson. She opens up about her personal experience with multiple miscarriages, which ultimately led her to researching and writing her book called Carrying to Term, A Practical Guide to Reducing Your Miscarriage Risk. 
Today you're going to learn some of the reasons that it's often challenging for women to get the care they deserve when experiencing pregnancy loss or fertility challenges. Why it's so important to use an in-depth health history to drive testing and treatment decisions, which tests should be considered when investigating miscarriage, and some simple strategies that you can implement to reduce your risk of pregnancy loss going forward. So all that sounds amazing. Um, she's she, This interview is so great. She has um, a wealth of knowledge and is really up on the research. So as a naturopathic doctor myself, uh, I really love following her and she has some great emails that goes out to NDs to help teach them about the most current research and how to actually read research um, and do the kind of the critical appraisal that she does. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce her properly and then we'll get started with the interview. So Dr. Jordan, Jordan Robertson is a naturopathic doctor and a women's health author. Through her experience in medical literature review, critical appraisal, and research, Dr. Robertson has published over 12 literature reviews on women's health and has worked closely with McMaster University, writing and facilitating courses on integrative medicine for over the last 10 years, speaking for their medical school, and working off-site for the endometriosis clinic at McMaster Hospital. Dr. Robertson has most recently or lectured for the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors Convention on PCOS, PMS, PMDD, and endometriosis, and has published a book for women called Carrying to Term on Reducing Miscarriage Risk. In her clinical practice, she focuses on women's health issues, including PMS, PCOS, infertility, menopause, and breast cancer recovery. So you can find the link to all of Dr. Robertson's um, information to her website, her Instagram handle, and also her book um, through the link in the podcast description notes. Enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome, Dr. Jordan Robertson. Thank you so much for being with us on the Mastering Your Fertility podcast this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So let's just start with you telling us a little bit about your background and why you decided to become a naturopathic doctor. Ah, that's a good question. And actually, the, the running joke... Um, in my family. So my, my background is actually in uh, critical appraisal, we call it. So where you study medical literature and you decide what's real and what isn't real and how to read studies and discern what's like actual fact and what's myth. Um, so that was my background in undergrad. But as I tried to decide how to turn that into a career, my stumbling on naturopathic medicine was actually just a really long Google search. So I plugged into the search bar, which this is the irony, all the things that I was interested in, which was nutrition and preventative medicine and endocrinology and women's health and exercise. And when I hit enter, the open house for the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine came up as the first ad, um, and then it kind of went from there. So my very research-oriented brain actually just did a Google search, kind of in desperation, trying to figure out how to 
marry the things that I was interested in um, because I couldn't seem to find that um, when looking down sort of the path of conventional care. And so I looked at whether I wanted to be a midwife, which was a very strong contender at the time, whether I wanted to do things like paramedicine or emergency care. And then I actually just stumbled upon naturopathic medicine and it became a great fit because it lets me sort of work in that realm of like research and critical appraisal because the amount of research we have for integrative medicine is really profound, but also lets me keep sort of that sort of education role with patients, which I love um, because I have the time, right? And the luxury of being able to like invest in cases in a way that I wouldn't have if I worked in a conventional uh, medical model. Yeah, that's definitely true. One of the things, of course, that we love about naturopathic medicine. So um, you wrote a book about um, pregnancy loss, and one of the areas that you focus on in your practice is fertility and miscarriage. So tell us what inspired you to ultimately write your book. Well, it actually was my personal history with miscarriage that prompted the initial collection of research. So I had three miscarriages before I had my son. So I was pregnant every time that I ovulated in the year period of time. Um, and my experience, like after the third, um, they were quite, the first one specifically was quite a traumatic miscarriage that was missed and lots of ER visits and lots of um, sort of what I'll call emotional trauma around that. Um, but they all happened like at very sort of stressful moments in my life. They were all in my last year of uh, my naturopathic schooling um, during my board exam prep. And when I had had the third, I finally was like, okay, well, what's going on here, right? Like why, how do I, with you know the amount of knowledge I have coming out of school, not know how to make this happen for me, right? Like I must be missing something um, to not understand why I can't uh, maintain a pregnancy. And so it started to evolve into me doing some research initially for myself. I had to really advocate to get progesterone suppositories for my fourth pregnancy, which ultimately ended up being um, my son. I had to, you know, advocate for the kind of screening and testing that I wanted to have done on myself. And so I started to collect this information originally from like a personal perspective, but then started to realize that we actually should be taking a much more proactive and functional medicine perspective when we look at miscarriage. And my the thing that sort of lights my brain on fire in practice is when naturopathic doctors have something so vital to offer medical care for women. Um, so things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, things like um, miscarriage, we have an incredible role to play. And so I got so excited by just the potential for what we could do for patients that I then really started collecting information over maybe over an eight or 10 year period of time that sort of turned into the book because by the end of it, I had read every single article that was published about uh, miscarriage over a 10 year period and felt very confident that I could pull that together to help other women not have to go through what I had gone through. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think it's it's so helpful that you collected that information and that it was very evidence-based because I think that's ultimately what is kind of going to create that bridge between naturopathic and functional medicine and the traditional medical model. So presenting it in that way, I think is really helpful in you know educating other types of practitioners that may not be staying up on some of this research, largely because they don't have time, right? Right. I have a question too, because when you talked about advocating for yourself to get the progesterone, to get the proper tests done, um, do you feel like that's changed at all in the conventional medicine world? Or do you feel like a lot of the listeners out there are probably struggling with that same thing? Um, Hence is probably why you wrote the book to educate them and say, here's what to ask your doctor for. But it just seems like there's such a gap there still. Um, Because in your particular situation, you had three miscarriages, which at that time was the definition of recurrent miscarriage and is when conventional medicine should step in and say, let's do this, this, and this. So I'm just curious uh, to get a little more information about your personal experience and, and what it was like to advocate for yourself. Yeah, it wasn't easy because, because even like I came in with like an incredible, like bigger knowledge base than sort of the average patient, right? I was a graduate from a naturopathic medical school sitting in my family doctor's office asking for a prescription that was, they were very hesitant to give me. Um, and I remember at that time feeling like I shouldn't have to be like banging the door down for this prescription. Like it's very well indicated and I was already pregnant, right? So I'd had a po- like my fourth positive pregnancy test in nine months. Um, and I remember just feeling really disheartened that I needed to go to that length of essentially begging for uh, a drug. I mean, that was 10 years ago or almost 11 years ago now. So I think the landscape of fertility medicine has changed a little bit. Um, I mean, I did cite in the book, 75% of all... Um, cases where there's some kind of reproductive technology or patients are in a fertility clinic setting are being offered progesterone as part of their care. So there's a a huge percentage of women that are now being offered progesterone when they're in a fertility clinic setting. The question is, is are we getting women into that setting um, fast enough or often enough, or are we over-treating women? Maybe some women don't need to be in that setting if they had access to simple strategies like progesterone, like adequate thyroid supplementation, like maybe they wouldn't even need to be in a fertility clinic, right? So I think more women are likely getting access to that care. The question is, are we doing that for the right reasons? I'm not sure, right? That might just be a trend that we see because, you know, we see so much reproductive and endocrine issues in women in this generation that we're fast forwarding them into fertility clinics faster. Our age of women even starting to try to have a family is also older. And so women are qualifying for fertility care, maybe sort of faster along their process than women had been 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I'm not sure how to how to evaluate that, but at least we know now that when women are being treated professionally by a fertility clinic, the vast majority of them are being offered progesterone, which is a very positive step, right? Right, definitely. Well, especially, you know, given given the safety of a drug like that and, um, you know, the potential benefit as well, it seems kind of crazy that it was so difficult for you to have to advocate for that prescription. I know, like in hindsight, it's just 
it, it blows my mind that I, that it took that much and, and thank goodness I was so stubborn, right? Because now I have a, you know, beautiful 10 year old son as a result of, you know, me being such a hard ass. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, it can definitely pay off to, to take that stance. So I have a question about research. And um, so in your book, you talk in several places about studies that you'd like to see done, but that haven't been done yet. Um, so do yeah. you think that we're behind in our research in women's medicine and fertility? Um, and, you know, if so, where do you think our gaps are? Ah, that is a huge question. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's definitely a positive, and I hate the word trend, but there is a positive trend towards having more studies published that are looking at fertility in the way that maybe I'm going to say that it should be, right, in a more complex way, where I'll use PCOS. That's kind of the perfect example. Our diagnostic criteria for PCOS used to be incorrect, right? We used to need women to have a positive ultrasound for them, like an ultrasound with cysts, to qualify as being called PCOS. You know, fast forward 20 years, and that is no longer part of the diagnostic criteria. You don't need to have cysts. And so in some ways, the research is getting better and better, right, as we evolve. Is it happening at a rate that I'd like to see? Maybe not. Um, And we probably are missing lots of pieces when it comes to fertility medicine in in the research trials. So a great example um, is, is just looking at the kind of patients that are in a fertility clinic, right? So women who are in a fertility clinic smoke more, they're more overweight, they eat less vegetables. Um, And so we have a really hard time when we go to study a population that already is maybe slightly less healthy than women that are walking in the community. And so most of the research hasn't we call it stratified, meaning that they haven't um, tried to compare women who are in a fertility clinic and who aren't, women who do eat vegetables to women who don't. We have a hard time separating the lifestyle impact on fertility because we're just studying everybody together as a group. Um, I would say the same thing probably happens with miscarriage and um, the phrase, you know, that some miscarriages are maybe, you know, quote unquote, supposed to happen, or maybe that embryo can't you know develop and there is a subset of miscarriages that certainly that happens there's also a subset of miscarriages that are perhaps preventable um and so and we often lump them together when we talk about them and so we don't do a great job in the research of of making note that there are sort of certain lifestyle factors that would maybe influence how successful that study will and won't be if that makes any sense. Do you, oh, do it you totally, understand what I'm trying to totally say? Totally makes sense. Yeah. You know, you you see this um sort of phenomenon called like healthy healthy user bias sometimes in the research where you have a population that's having a certain problem, but they're also more likely to do a whole bunch of things that would make that problem worse. And then you know you're comparing right. them to a study group that doesn't necessarily have all of those tendencies and you're like, okay, well what is what is the driving factor here really? And that can be hard to tease out. Absolutely. And especially when, and I quoted this in the book, there's a study that just looked at healthy behavior habits in women that are um, undergoing IVF. And a huge percentage of the women still smoked, still drank, and very few of them exercised. Um, And so you're already biasing the information when we know that like as a subset, that's what's happening. And unless the study goes out of its way to comment on like the underlying health factors of that 
um, patient population, it could really skew the data, right? Especially, you know, thinking about the interactions between um, alcohol and folic acid, right? Like maybe a study that's done on folic acid would seem not that effective if we give it to women who have a higher baseline alcohol intake. And so it's really difficult for us to try and make those, um, you have to really read between the lines and really read the full text to make sure that they've accounted for all of the possible um, bias that they might have. But there's a ton of selection bias in, in fertility um, and there's pros and cons to that, right? Like when we study people who are undergoing IVF, we've taken out the fact that they might not know which data have intercourse on, right? And when we study patients walking in the community, and I'm sure you guys have in your practices, we can get women pregnant just by educating them about their cycle. When we study IVF, we've taken a lot of chance out of it. And so it can teach us a lot about an intervention. Um, but there's, there's cons to that too, certainly. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I think it's so difficult, you know, when you're trying to study the impact of diet and lifestyle to design a study, a study that teases out like one variable's impact. You know, there's so many things that we can do and so many things that we can educate women on that can have such a positive impact on their fertility. And how do we design a study that takes all of that stuff into account? You know, that's difficult, particularly in nutrition, sure. <laughs> which is my area of expertise. <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely. It, it took, and then really because we study things that, that way, it makes our patient population also want to do one or two things to try and enhance their fertility, right? And so when you give them a list of five or six things that are positive, they'll say, well, how will we know which one is working? My answer is, well, I'm not sure we care, right? Um, yeah, if you get pregnant, who cares? That's right, who cares? <laughs> right. Um, if they all show some benefit that is significant on their own, then, you know, imagine the impact we can have if we pull them together, where conventional medicine, we're, we're more likely to take that sort of silver bullet approach, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, so when we do have high quality research, like we're coming out with, I feel like more recently, um, being able to compile a lot of the past research and do meta-analyses and be able to come up with some really good results. Um, but this new research, it's very difficult to actually see that in practice, especially with more conventional medicine. They're a little behind unless you're like at a you know, a fertility clinic that is really up on the research and is, is taking the, I would say the approach of applying that research, um, with their current patient base. But, um, why, why do you think that is? Why, why is it so hard to actually like translate that research into real life, um, advice or treatments for women? That's a great question. I think, I mean, the one of the challenges we face in, at least on in Ontario, is that the majority of healthcare is funded by the publicly funded healthcare system, which needs some rules, right, in order to create structure. Um, and so a great example of this would be thyroid health. Uh, it is not standard practice to run thyroid antibodies in women who are struggling with hypothyroidism. And so for women who have secondary infertility, meaning they have one healthy baby and they've had now miscarriages trying to have their second, that step is not taken as part of like regularly funded public health because that, that test in, in their opinion doesn't offer additional information. It doesn't change how they treat women. Um, and so for us, that ends up being an area where we can certainly like expose the maybe possible 
diagnosis or cause for the recurrent miscarriages. Um, and so in, on one hand, I understand. I understand why medicine needs rules in order to create um, some kind of construct that physicians can work under. They need to create some kind of standards of care to develop and to evolve standards of care takes an immense amount of time and research and effort and money. And for us to be like absolutely certain that that new research is relevant, right? And sometimes new research compared to old research is really a drop in the bucket and we need to gather more information before that becomes standard practice. Being an off public health practitioner, I have the luxury again of being able to apply research as it comes. And so we have the ability to read something um, and say, you know what, the, the research actually is suggesting that testing thyroid antibodies for secondary infertility is a, you know, maybe the, the best approach or best practice. Um, and so I have that ability to sort of walk outside that box or color outside the lines. Um, but I, I certainly understand, especially when, pub, when health is being delivered at the level of public health, they're trying to do the most amount of good for the most amount of people um, with maybe the least amount of resources, right? Um, but it is challenging to evolve standards of care because when new research comes out, like just the the amount of information that was before it, right? We need that that those new studies to really outweigh what's been done in the past. Um, so even in the book, I talk about the difference between using desiccated thyroid hormone and synthroid or L-troxin um, or levothyroxin. The reason we can't suggest using desiccated thyroid is just the amount of research on on uh, levothyroxine just like monstrously outweighs the data for desiccated. And so I can't, you know, ethically suggest that we would use natural thyroid hormone um, when maybe we do have a little bit of research that there's no harm. I just can't beat it, right, with the amount of research we have for synthetic thyroid hormone. And so the standard kind of has to sit there until we can be sure without a shadow of a doubt that it's, you know, that they're equivocal, right? Um, but it's tough because each individual woman maybe needs someone to be curious enough about her case to look outside the box and start to work outside those public health lines in order to get her the best care, right? Because public health wasn't designed for her. It was designed to treat the mass. Um, when we look at each individual patient, she may need something that isn't you know, conventional, right? She might have an autoimmune disease or she might have a unique case that requires us to look at it with like a much more progressive lens than what the standards of care have suggested. That's a really good point. And I think that just lends to the point that we've mentioned before is that every, um, section of medicine has their their expertise. So conventional medicine or public health is going to have their, their place and their expertise, but then you also have more progressive practitioners like ourselves that um, might be able to bring something else to the table that um, conventional medicine won't be able to. I also wanted to ask the question on the flip side of that is that speaking of more progressive practitioners, I feel like sometimes they can take research that doesn't have a lot of studies on it, or maybe they might take like one particular study. Let's take an example for like the keto diet. And they, so, okay. they, sh they show that it's um, amazing. You lose weight. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's probably studied on men or maybe both men and women. 
but not just women and not just in the fertility realm. And, and they start applying it to all their patients saying that you should be on keto. What, give us an example of like why that probably is not the best thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) They're just a caloric deficit. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, you're right. And so, I mean, the, the phrase I try and use, I mean, is we shouldn't really look for zebras in a crowd full of horses, right? Like the, the reason why most women is ha- are having miscarriages is probably right in front of us, right? It just requires a really good history taking for someone to care and have curiosity about what's going on with their life. Not every single woman has a methylation defect or has some unique, you know, uh, undiagnosable autoimmune disease that we need to search for. Some or women do, and I see those. Or, yeah, some women do. I see them, but not everyone does. And so, I think if we go into that sort of assessment, realizing that we need to just rule out honestly the very basics. Right? If we think about like basic healthcare is not being met for most women, iron deficiency, B12, vitamin D, protein adequacy, exercise, stop smoking, limit the drinking, right? Like these are very simple concepts that a hundred percent of your women would benefit from. Um, Looking for that weird and wonderful needle in a haystack kind of approach for assessment is not um, is not necessarily needed for all patients, right? And especially when really good diagnostic testing, and I'm meaning like serum, estrogen and progesterone, you know, um, FSH and LH. I'm not big on big functional medicine kind of tests like urine steroid hormone analysis, I don't think is necessary. And the reason being is that those tests don't offer more diagnostically than simple, inexpensive, cheap serum hormones. And if I want to be able to have a conversation with a fertility clinic or a doctor, I'd like to make sure that we're all talking the same language. And so I use the same tests that they would use to assess and diagnose their patients. I think when we start to apply treatment across the board, so your example of like the keto diet or whatnot, um, it's, I mean, in some ways that's a bit of a lazy way to practice, right? Like in theory, maybe everyone would benefit from reducing their sugar intake and whatnot. But um, the, I don't think that really honors like what's best for the patient in front of you if you are blindly prescribing things across the board and getting really excited and attached to research that maybe doesn't have the kind of like merit that I would want to see. Um, there are not that many studies that have looked strictly at diet and miscarriage. And I like fully admit that in the book. Um, but the couple that we do have, we should cling to because that's like literally the best evidence we have. Right. Right. Yeah. It just reminds me of this patient that I was seeing who is now pregnant, which is so exciting, but she came from another practitioner that, um, told her that she needed to be on a keto diet and needed to stick to like 5% carbs or something really, really low. And I think it was because her past history was that she was having issues with like hypoglycemia, just a really fast metabolism. And, um, but you know, as she was trying to get pregnant, I was just thinking like, no, that's not, that's way too low. 5% of carbs First of all, it's going to make you so super stressed. Like that is a really hard diet. To I was going to say she's too tired and cranky to have sex now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like libido just crashed. Like no way she's getting pregnant. So I think 
you know, sometimes practitioners can just look at one little piece of the picture and be like, oh, you have hypoglycemia or you're having issues with, you know, blood sugar balance. You need to just go full on keto. And it's like, no, you got, you really got to take, just like you were saying, each individual and look at the full picture and understand what their goals are. Oh, you're trying to get pregnant. Like you're not, your goal isn't to completely cure your hypoglycemia for the rest of your life. Like your goal is to get pregnant. So how do we do that in a very safe manner? Anyway. Um, so moving on, um, so with newer, I think we actually already addressed this next question that we wanted to ask you because you were talking about how in the public health that they don't test thyroid antibodies. Um, so that's just a gap um, when it comes to what standard of care and what is current in the current research and what actually needs to happen for women, especially when they're having multiple miscarriages, where we advocate for women to just have their thyroid antibodies tested across the board before they try to conceive to avoid miscarriage. We're all about prevention here, right? So um, mm -hmm. we want to make sure that their thyroid's balanced before. And so speaking of that, like what, if somebody came to you and was said, you know, I, we're trying to get pregnant, we haven't, they haven't got pregnant before, um, what are some basic tests that you would run for them? Um, that's a good question. And so the way that I put it to patients is that lab work needs to tell us something that we don't already know, or it needs to change our treatment. And so if through a, a history taking, a woman has a regular cycle, she's, you know, either done home, uh, ovulation predictor kit tests, or she's tracked her cycle. She's pretty confident. She's ovulating, you know, she has minimal cramps, PMS, no breast tenderness. Um, you know, if they haven't started trying, if she's otherwise well and healthy, I may not actually run any tests, right? Um, we certainly can take a incredibly proactive approach, um, but often applying some of the like basic principles for miscarriage reduction, like um, balancing blood sugar, you know, um, having vitamin D adequacy, that would maybe be the one exception that I'd love to know that number before a woman gets pregnant. Um, you know, if I if I'm not suspicious that there's anything else going on, um, it is very possible that I would run quite minimal blood work. That said, the research like over the last year, which has come out since the book has been published actually, actually has started to define what we think optimal levels of progesterone might be. Where it used to be, we were very happy if progesterone was over 10 nanomoles per liter. We just talked about this before we started that our reference ranges are different. So, but in Canada, we used to be happy if progesterone was over 10, that just confirmed ovulation. Um, Whereas now the research is suggesting it probably needs to be over 30, maybe even over 50 to have the lowest risk of miscarriage. So we might actually be starting to get evidence that supports the sort of optimization of female hormones versus just sort of a very black and white approach that conventional conventionally we've taken. But I might not do any lab work to start unless I was starting to get some signs that maybe there is a slightly increased risk for whatever reason. So if in a woman's history, she has had lots of Accutane or she, you know, gets night sweats before her period, or she, you know, is using 12 to 18 Advil per month to manage her menstrual cramps. Now, like this is a otherwise well woman who, you know, maybe it isn't completely 
risk-free when it comes to miscarriage. We might be suspecting some underlying PCOS if she's got you know, treatment-resistant acne. We might be considering premature ovarian failure if she's got some breakthrough menopausal symptoms. Maybe we're considering endometriosis if she's been self-medicating you know, with lots of um, pain relievers around her cycle. And those things would prompt me to do more preventative type um, lab work to look at what we think is going on, even in this woman who has never tried to get pregnant before. Um, but if, if those things aren't there, then sometimes I'll have women try to get pregnant for three months before we start to investigate um, a little bit more thoroughly. Because like I said earlier, we don't need to be super alarmist about whether or not women are at risk, especially if we address like the pretty specific diet and lifestyle things that will help make every like every cycle slightly more successful but the majority of women have some like secrets hidden in their history taking that might give us clues as to what's going on right if women have been on the pill like their entire reproductive life well why right why did you go on that in the first place you know how did that work for you did you have side effects from that like there are a lot of things we can tease out from that history that would maybe have us do some preventative um, lab work. If their mom has hypothyroidism, right? There's things, they have a co-diagnosis of celiac. Then I'm, I'm a little bit more um, proactive with the lab work because I can see that there's maybe some areas that should be more thoroughly assessed before we try and get pregnant. I think that's one of the things that's so great about naturopathic medicine is the depth of the intake that you do with people. So you can start to really uncover some of these things that might be hiding and would hide from a conventional practitioner that just really doesn't have the time. You know, I, I always think it's interesting that when a woman already has like a primary care physician and she goes into that person and says, okay, you know, I want to get pregnant now. Is that person going to do like a thorough fertility specific women's health specific questionnaire or intake with that person that they're already seeing as a patient, you know, probably not. But could we be missing some signs of hypothyroidism? Would we know whether or not her vitamin D is sufficient? You know, would we know exactly what clues might be in her menstrual cycle that might tell us that there could be an underlying hormonal imbalance? And that's just what I love about spending the time to do the intake. And I think some people are so used to living with symptoms that are annoying, but they're not so disruptive that it's like bringing somebody into the doctor to say, oh, there's something wrong with me. And we just get so used to those symptoms that we don't think of them as a problem. And that's what I think is great about doing such a thorough intake is that you can uncover some of those things. And women are like, oh, I, I didn't know that it wasn't normal for me to have you know excruciating menstrual cramps every single month or you know, for me to have acne every single month or for me to want to kill my husband every time I start my period. Mm-hmm. So yeah, true. that's such a good point. Like, I think most of that we've, like, we need to reframe the way we think about women's health issues to say they're common, right? They're not normal. Um, because yeah, we've uncovered lots of causes of infertility just by doing that great thorough history taking. I can recall a specific patient that, um, you know, I inquired about her breast health and, you know, she's kind of like casually, I asked her about nipple discharge um, and she's never been pregnant before. And she's like, oh, well, just when I work out, right? I was like, well, what? <laughs> like go back. And so it turns out that she has galacteria, right? But it only happened when she had a sports bra on and she would get the like nipple stimulation and she would have milk let down, but she's never had a baby. 
And so it was only then, like after having that thorough, she's like, oh, no one at the fertility clinics ever even ever asked me about breast health. Um, but And they also had never run prolactin. And so it ended up that that was part of her case and something that was getting in the way of her having a successful cycle. Um, and so, yeah, it really like, you had to go back to like the beginning, beginning. And even we're starting to see, and I've spent a lot of time in the last year researching PCOS, women who were born small for their gestational age are at a higher risk of developing PCOS in their lifetime. So I now even go back and ask about like maternal health um, and what that pregnancy was like for that woman. Did her mom have gestational diabetes? Did her mom have preeclampsia? Was she born small for gestational age? Because it actually increases her likelihood of having a small placenta, small for gestational age babies, but also all of the risk factors that create increased likelihood of miscarriage. Um, and so my history taking like is now even going back one generation because of what we're learning about that sort of epigenetic experience with specifically PCOS. Yeah, I love that. And and I I love that we're starting to do a little bit of that research into like the in utero environment and how that impacts the development of that child and how that can ultimately impact, you know, especially for women, what their reproductive years really look like in terms of symptoms and you know what their risks are during pregnancy. So I think that's awesome that you, that you're going back that far. And you know, I think we asked some questions about like whether or not somebody was birthed vaginally or by cesarean and whether or not they were breastfed. But I love the idea of asking more about what their mom's pregnancy was like with them. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure it's very fascinating to the patient slash client too. Of like, yeah. why does that matter? It what is. And so many women don't, <laughs> so many women don't realize that they like, they live their entire life with their eggs, right? And so their health history from the beginning actually will impact their fertility care. Um, Even my daughter, who's seven, um, came home from school after learning about the female body. And she says, mommy, my teacher didn't know that her eggs had been in there her whole life. Um, And so my my seven-year-old is educating her teacher that you know, a woman actually lives her entire lifetime with her eggs. And she's like, I told her my eggs are in there. Right. And so, but even that knowledge that to so recognize cute. that the way that a woman's like entire health history actually impacts her, um, her fertility, like this is knowledge that is, I think is vital for us to pass on, not just to women who are trying to conceive, but also for them to be able to pass to their daughters, right? That, you know, we're getting a little bit of evidence that maybe Accutane lowers ovarian reserve, right? We're getting some more and more women being diagnosed with cancers at younger ages exposed to chemotherapy who now are trying to get pregnant. We have a lot to learn, I think, about just the way that our environment and drugs and whatnot are impacting fertility for women. But like having them understand that I think is so key um, because they're just missing that knowledge. It's not that they don't want to have good fertility. No one's ever given them a reason to kind of care about it. Right. Right. Well, I think that there's this sort of hints at an underlying problem in conventional medicine, which is healthcare versus 
disease care and how we educate people about what it actually means to be healthy and why they need to spend time investing in preventative care to keep themselves healthy, to preserve health. And then ultimately, you know, for women in their reproductive years, preserve fertility. And I just don't think that we have that mindset. You know, we're very reactive in healthcare as opposed to proactive. We go to the doctor when there's something wrong and doctors will look at tests and go, okay, yeah, now you're firmly out of range for this. They're not necessarily looking for signs that something might become wrong in the future. They're like, are you out of range? If you're not, then you're healthy. And I think that that, right. that kind of gives us just the wrong mentality about our health and about our fertility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You're so right. Yeah. I had, um, have a patient with premature ovarian failure at age 16. It was primary, um, amenorrhea which just means she never got her period. And she was put on birth control for 10 years. And she came to me because she wanted to get off birth control because she wanted to get pregnant. And it was just a really hard conversation with her that I was the very first practitioner to actually tell her, you're not going to be able to get pregnant. And that in fact, you shouldn't be on birth control. You need to be on bioidentical hormones because you you have this genetic condition or something happened to where, you know, you have premature ovarian failure, which, you know, her FSH was well over a hundred and her AMH was zero. So it was just, there was really no chance, but it was interesting because I had a conversation with her of like, if, cause she's very interested in wanting to know why, which is totally understandable. And I told her to have a conversation with her mother as, you know, what learn more about how your experience was, um, or her experience was when you were in utero and maybe even before, like, where did she work? Was there any exposures, um, during pregnancy? Um, and it was a really interesting conversation to have with her because she, it was just like, she never thought that it could actually be something that her mother was exposed to that. Maybe she absolutely had nothing to do with the premature ovarian, ovarian failure, that it was something that potentially was caused, um, way before she was even conceived or during utero. Well, it's definitely disappointing that there's so many environmental factors that we, especially obviously as children, you know, when we're in the womb, we have absolutely no control over any of that stuff. And, you know, it's unfortunate that we do live in an environment where we don't always have control over the things that we're exposed to and things that can literally affect the entire course of our lives. And that's a whole other soapbox, but I thought I would just, you know, (laughs) mention that. That's a different podcast episode. (laughs) Exactly. So I know that you wanted to, or in your book, you actually took a pretty firm stance on alcohol and caffeine exposure for women and potentially men as well. So (laughs) could you give us a little more background on that Mm -hmm. and and the research that you found? Sure. Um, Yeah, I do take a firm, hard stance on it. I think because culturally we take a pretty wishy-washy stance on things that are not healthy, but that are still endemic in culture for fear of disappointing someone or making someone upset. Um, when my, my role really in writing the book is just to give you information when someone comes to see me and they have a specific outcome that they want to achieve. My role is to give them the best information possible on how to achieve that goal. 
whether they go home and do it, whether they go home and hate my guts, that's completely different. Um, but the, the, the evidence for caffeine and alcohol is quite compelling. And if we had a drug that you know, did the same thing or did the opposite, right? We would be, we jump all over that, right? Being very excited. If a, if a drug reduced miscarriage as much as alcohol caused miscarriage, we'd be prescribing it to every woman in a fertility clinic. Um, but yet when it's something that's cultural and something that's dietary and something that maybe requires a hard conversation or work on the patient's part, um, suddenly we're a little shy about recommending it, uh, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. Now, most of the research, like I said, on diet is, um, is you know, pretty sparse. But what we do know is that couples that have any alcohol during an IVF cycle, and so this was actually just a short duration, right? They really just track these couples maybe for four to six weeks prior to their IVF transfer. Um, and women or men who had had any alcohol in that four-week period of time, their failure rate was twice as high as the couples who abstained from alcohol during the same period of time. We're talking about like a doubling of the failure rate, meaning that people who abstained were twice as successful as people who drank in the four weeks. Um, and given that such a huge percentage of patients still drink in that window of time, right, which was found in a different study that was just observing health behavior, you know, if 20% of couples are still drinking in that, that last four weeks, you can't tell me that that's just not an education issue, right? Like I say in the book, right, it's like the biggest effing day of their year, did anyone tell them, right, that not having a drink for four weeks before might double the likelihood of their success? Now, my guess is for women that abstinence longer than four weeks probably has a positive impact, given that her egg quality, like we said, is there her entire lifetime. And so she may do better with like low to moderate drinking um, or less or abstinence before she even attempts to get pregnant. But the research was specifically done on those last four weeks. And even just taking it out for four weeks had a, a really profound impact on the success of their um, IVF cycles. And the same goes for men, we know there's a dose-dependent effect on sperm quality um, and quantity when men drink. So the more they drink, the lower their sperm volume, the more DNA damage. We know that there is a linear um, relationship there. The problem with studying men is that we've really underemphasized the importance of sperm quality because most technology just like literally takes the most healthy one and we don't care about the rest. And so if on average they're all crappy, you know, we don't care. Um, but the data is showing that the more they drink, the worse their sperm quality is, which I mean, you can't tell me that that's not important, even though we don't have a study on it specifically yet. Um, so that's the most sort of compelling evidence we have for alcohol. The caffeine stuff is a little different. Um, the caffeine um, kind of miscarriage that's caused is not the same as alcohol. So alcohol in theory is sort of teratogenic, right? Alcohol damages DNA. It hurts the sperm. It hurts the eggs. And the reason you have those miscarriages is because those egg and those sperm are hurt by alcohol. Um, caffeine is different. So caffeine actually causes miscarriages in embryos that otherwise would have possibly been carried to term. Um, and it's also a dose response relationship, meaning we don't know if there's a safe level. And so that's why I had to take such a strong stand on it because I cannot say without a doubt that having like a one shot of espresso is fine, but don't have 10 
That's not what the research says. It says any is bad and the more you have, it's worse. And so the stance I had to take was complete abstinence, especially in that last four weeks, because caffeine is causing you know, blood vessel disruption, it's preventing good implantation in otherwise really healthy egg and sperm. And so that these are these are couples that would have perhaps carried to term if they didn't consume caffeine. And so my recommendation had to be pretty harsh um, because the outcome, I mean, if you want the outcome you want, then, then that's probably what has to be done, right? Um, but I recognize that that's like the, the not popular vote, right? To come off alcohol and caffeine, but the, you know, it's, it's important, right? And we have the data that it is like maybe vital to a preconception plan. And I'm a big coffee drinker. So I would be the first person to say, if you could have a cup of coffee. I know um, I'm shedding a tear right now. <laughs> I know. I just don't think you can. I don't think you can do it safely and, and have your eye on the prize, right? Um, mm. I used to actually not treat a ton of fertility in my practice, even though I had spent so much time doing the research because I didn't want to have that negotiation with patients about what best practice looked like, right? I didn't want them to ask me, what well, can I just drink for half the month? Right. I, I don't want to have that conversation. I just want to tell you what the best is. And if you want to go home and do something different than that, that's great. But at least I know, like in my, you know, soul that I told you exactly what the best evidence was for trying to hit that target. Um, and so I swore off treating fertility for a long time because the lifestyle negotiation for me was so challenging to do in practice. Whereas now I think, especially after um, spending so much time on it and publishing the book, I'm a lot more confident to just say, well, that's how it is. <laughs> and so if you don't want to do the progesterone suppositories, if you don't want to take out your caffeine, that's fine. But you asked me how to not miscarry and I'm going to give you like my absolute best foot forward. Um, and so for the diet stuff, like it has to be taken out as I drink yeah. my coffee. I know me too. Well, you know, when you're not actively trying to conceive, I guess I'm lucky because I, I've never really, I like the taste of coffee, but I've never really had like the caffeine addiction. And I used to mm -hmm. suffer really badly from anxiety before, you know, when I was sick, before I discovered nutrition, before I discovered, you know, naturopathic and functional medicine, and I couldn't tolerate it. And so I was never really able to develop the habit. So I guess that's lucky for me. I still Very. don't always tolerate caffeine. I'm well. <laughs> Maybe I would be too, but yeah, I guess it's not worth it at this point since I'm still going to be trying to conceive at some point here pretty soon. Um, so, you know, we talked about, we talked about testing for women who are just coming in proactively and, you know, looking to, to kind of maximize their fertility and minimize their risk of miscarriage. But there are some conditions and some testing that would need to be done if somebody's already experienced a miscarriage. And so I guess in your practice, at what point do you investigate? At, you know, after how many miscarriages do you investigate? And then what are some of those first line tests? I mean, I know a lot of those things kind of depend on the symptoms of the woman and, and what specifically she's experiencing, but kind of what would be your go-tos for somebody in that situation? Um, I think I would probably, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, like it probably depends on the case, but if someone has had one miscarriage, let's say I would be more interested in running some additional tests. So vitamin D is vital. Um, I like to run a day 21 serum hormones to be confident that they ovulated and that their progesterone production is adequate. Um, especially if we didn't do progesterone like in their previous cycle where they had miscarried. 
Um, I will do an AMH in women, especially if we have reason to be suspicious that her ovarian reserve maybe is lower. Also, because that gives us some guidance as to how long we can go with natural cycles before we would maybe want to refer a patient for um, fertility care, or at least start that conversation about whether or not they're going to engage with other technology. Um, I would be interested in running a fasting insulin and a fasting glucose. Many women um, do struggle with some level of insulin resistance. Um, I would also just do a simple tape measure around the waist, looking at where women are carrying their weight and maybe have a conversation about the impact of diet and lifestyle um, and blood sugar regulation. Um, and so, but a fasting insulin and a fasting glucose lets you do a quick HOMA IR calculation, which can kind of give you some context when it comes to how much insulin resistance that patient has or how hard their body's working essentially to overproduce um, insulin. If they have menstrual cramps and we're about to sort of go down the line, so if we're in Canada, for women to get to the point of being assessed by a gynecologist for endometriosis is quite a lengthy process. I would run a serum CA125, which is a biomarker that we're starting to use to rule in endometriosis. I do that in women where who've never approached any kind of gynecological um, care or assessment because if we're talking about a six-month wait to maybe have a laparoscopic um, investigation, I, I can simply do a blood test to at least rule in endometriosis if we want to go down that route of, of looking at that as a possible cause. Um, so those are some of the pretty basic tests that I would do initially. I love a ferritin, especially for women who've had heavy menstrual bleeding or who've just even just had regular menstrual cycles for a long time. It's hard for women to stay iron replete um, when they're menstruating regularly. So I often will test B12 and iron as part of just sort of a general health assessment and workup as well. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like. Sometimes I'll do day three estradiol and FSH, especially if I'm um, curious about ovarian reserve or if I'm wondering if women, maybe if they're slightly older or if they're starting to exhibit some symptoms of um, low hormones or, or declining ovarian reserve, we'll do a day three um, test as well. So that's kind of like, like that basic workup that I would um, send a woman for. So how about cortisol? Because you mentioned that in the book as kind of <laughs> I was just relevant. That. You you mentioned it in the book as sort of relevant to, to every woman, you know, whatever boat they're in, whether it's they've already miscarried or, you know, preconception. And, you know, you talk about your personal story with miscarriages being, in your opinion, very highly related to stress. So talk yeah. about cortisol, talk about how stress affects fertility, how it can impact miscarriage risk and, and maybe what we should be doing about that as women. Yeah. So I don't routinely test cortisol. And part of that is that the evidence for miscarriage suggests that if women identify that they have high stress or their cortisol is elevated, they're at an increased risk of miscarriage from stress. So the blood test isn't necessarily an accurate biomarker. Like it doesn't like, it doesn't guarantee that that patient is stressed, right? So if they are stressed, and many women identify as being stressed, then I treat their stress, right? So that is as good as an elevated cortisol on lab work. If they don't identify stress as being part of their health, but I see you know, a PCOS picture, which sometimes has really high adrenal involvement, 
if they have are exhibiting other signs and symptoms, maybe of um, dysregulated cortisol, so like a circadian rhythm issues, or if they work night shift, or if they have you know blood pressure issues, something that maybe would make me believe that their cortisol levels um, should be evaluated, then I'll run that as a test. But I will say that the vast majority of women that I end up working with just identify that they have stress. And technically, according to the research, that's as good as a positive uh, cortisol. So when we talk about it, I talk about the influence of um, stress on fertility with all of my patients because for men and women. So even if I talk to the female patients and then this information gets brought home to have a conversation about stress and the impact of stress on fertility, um, you know, we're wired to protect ourselves, right? And so for most women, their reproductive function goes down if they're stressed. And I would include, you know, high intensity exercise or low calorie dieting, or even the keto diet, right? Like things that put a physiological stress on a patient have an increased likelihood of turning off ovulation. And so for women where a where maybe we're not sure if they're ovulating every month, I'll throw a cortisol in with their FSH on, on um, day 21, because sometimes that can give us an idea of whether or not their stress response is actually turning off their ovulatory function. Um, but I have that conversation with everybody, right? And I um, talk about how, you know, as you're going through your fertility journey, whether that's with me alone or whether that's with a fertility clinic, that when stress rises between ovulation and implantation, women actually have a higher miscarriage rate. And so that's where I think strategies like acupuncture, mindfulness, you know, bringing in some of those practices so that during that two-week window that women can at least keep their stress consistent um, rather than having a heightened stress response, um, that their, their success is actually greater. But I don't routinely test it. And I think it's because so many women actually just identify that they're stressed. Um, and that's yeah. kind of good enough, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that might help some women, you know, to to have the test is to have like the, I guess the proof on the piece of paper that this is something they need to address. You know, I think for, for a lot of women, it's difficult, you know, stress is like in your mind, you're like, well, yeah, that's a problem, but I have so many things going on in my life and there's nothing I can do about it right now. And so I think sometimes seeing a, you know, a positive, like really high cortisol on a piece of paper might be maybe like permission to slow down and stop and, you know, just deal with that differently and prioritize their stress as opposed to just sort of writing it off and saying, well, that's, you know, too bad. That's just how my life is. It can't possibly be affecting my fertility that much. True. My problem is, is when it comes back normal, well, <laughs> and I'm like, you still need to do all the things I said, even though your test was normal. Yeah. Um, Fair point. Fair point. I understand what you mean. Um, and I think the way that I frame it for women too, is that most of the things we give women gold stars for, whether that's showing up to work or being a great parent or a great partner, she probably would still do some of those things, even if her stress was impacting her health, right? So no matter how tired, cold, hungry, and lonely we are, if a saber-toothed tiger shows up, we run, right? And, and many women's work and exercise and their life is that saber-toothed tiger. And so they can keep running. It's how they feel in those quiet moments that I ask them to reflect on. So when you are quiet by yourself in your room, right? Like 
how do you feel then? Right. And, and that's sort of the best sort of perspective I can give women that stress is impacting their health in the soft in the soft areas of their health, it's their mood, it's their PMS, it's their libido, um, it's you know their cravings. It's it's these like you know small little signals that their stress is starting to influence and impact their fertility. Not the fact that they can't like go to their high intensity exercise or deliver you know a huge presentation. That's not where it shows up because we're wired to do that right? It's the, it's the way they feel when they're alone, right? And I would say, if you're crying on your side of your bed in a towel after the shower, your stress is having an impact on your health. Um, doesn't matter to me whether or not, you know, you just got home from a 5k run, right? That's the part we can do even under really dire circumstances. It's like the rest of your health that starts to deteriorate. And especially for women, it shows up in their PMS. I can really relate to that. <laughs> I think Kristen can too. She's like, you can just see her face. She's like, yeah, uh-huh. well, I, I can relate to that, you know, because <clears throat> my, my story is sort of that classic excessively elevated cortisol, very low progesterone presentation. And, you know, isn't there some evidence that actually shows that elevated levels of cortisol can actually affect the way that like our uterus responds to our other hormones, which I think is interesting. Um, so, well, I mean, any imbalance in the endocrine system, you know, you have one hormone that's crazy out of whack. It's going to affect the way that your body responds to the other ones. But I think that's really interesting in particular for cortisol and, and how your uterine tissue might be able to respond to progesterone, for instance, in that luteal phase where it's so important to make sure that that uterine lining is being prepped properly for implantation. And then you mentioning stress goes up during that period and, you know, either we don't get pregnant or we have a higher risk of miscarriage. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're probably coming to the end of things here. So we always like to ask all of our guests, you know, what is your, what are your pearls of wisdom? What are your pieces of advice for women who, or couples who are on this journey? What do you want the takeaway to be of today's episode? Um, that's a good question. I think when I wrote the book, the, the purpose of it was to almost put back some of that power and knowledge to the, the woman or the couple to, to know that like there's hope, I think, that their actions have an impact on their outcome. That's what I want women to realize when they're working on their health, that the things they do matter right? And, and the science actually proves it, right? It's not, you know, it's not wishy-washy. If they do the things that enhance their fertility, they are changing, they can change their story. And I think that we generally under-empower patients um, in conventional healthcare, that they are more of a victim in their healthcare experience rather than uh, a, like sort of an agent of change in their own healthcare. And so when I wrote the book, all I wanted was for someone to have all the information in front of them that they would need to get the best care possible. Half of the book is about things that they can do themselves. And the other half is how to find it in their healthcare practitioner. Which tests do they need? Which levels do they need to look at? Which diagnoses need to be considered? And it was all the information there so that they didn't have to have this repeated multiple traumas before somebody gets interested in their case. 
Um, and so that was sort of my goal when I wrote it. And I think that my like take home message, I guess, is that, you know, they're like small decisions and small um, changes to your health, like actually have a really profound impact. You don't need to do a heroic, crazy, you know, complete health takeover to improve your likelihood of caring to term. There are small, sustainable health changes, and that's it, that, that really have a really profound impact on a patient's likelihood of conceiving and then likelihood of, of staying pregnant. Um, so that was kind of my purpose of doing that, was more of just that I want women to feel like they can advocate for themselves to get the kind of health care they need. Because even me, like as a naturopathic, a graduate, um, like a undergrad in medical research, I could not get the care I wanted. Um, and so how could I create a tool that gave women the language to actually advocate for that themselves so that they didn't have to experience that, that they can sort of stand on my shoulders and get what they need so that they can have the family that they want. That was sort of my, my goal with writing the book. That's pretty amazing. Thank you so much for, for that advice. Um, I was over here just nodding and saying, yes, 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 <laughs> because um, it seems like that's what the, the era is right now is these amazing books coming out, giving women hope, giving them this idea that you do have control and that what you do does matter. And, um, you know, that's what we need in women's health right now. We need that change, that paradigm shift um, in order to for women to get the things that they want, you know, to be able to get their, their family that they want. So. And the empowerment as well. Yeah. I mean, just, just the idea that you don't just go to the doctor anymore and they just tell you everything that you need to know in, in your 15 minute appointment. And then that's it. You don't have to do anything else. It's the doctor's job to help you. It's the doctor's job to get you pregnant. You know, now we are starting to get this, this shift where women are taking a little bit more control back. And I think that that's amazing. And, and books like this really help women do that is that, you know, you don't, you don't have to be a Harvard educated medical doctor to understand your body and, you know, to figure out what you need to be healthy. You don't need that. What you need is to just, you know, have the information to say, okay, here are the tests I need. Here's what my doctor can do for me. And here's what I can do for myself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Robertson, so much for being with us today. We really appreciate all of your knowledge. We appreciate your book. We'll be linking to that in the show notes for the episode. Anything else you want to share before we go today? I don't think so. I don't think so. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful that there are other naturopathic doctors in North America that are interested in evidence that are taking the stand that you women are, that just the more knowledge that we can give the public on how to make good, educated health decisions like that just makes me so happy. So I'm so grateful to be part of that for you so that we can just reach more women and have a, an even sort of greater impact. So thank you so much. Absolutely. We Thanks love it. So Thanks again for being here. Thanks, Jordan. that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you really enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Robertson. She is really amazing, just a wealth of information. And if you get a chance, head over to Amazon and 
pick up her book, Caring to Term. I know that you're going to learn a lot with that book. I know that we certainly did. Um, And you can also find links to her website and her Instagram on our website at the podcast episode. So tinyfeet.co forward slash podcast. And the link is also in the podcast description notes. If you think this will be helpful to somebody that you know, maybe a girlfriend or a family member, please share with them. We would love to be able to spread the word about this important information. And also, if you feel so inclined, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes. We would also love to hear what you think about the podcast and uh, if you have any suggestions on upcoming um, topics we are all ears. We would love to hear from you. So next week is going to be episode 37, and I cannot wait for this episode. I absolutely loved recording this interview. It's with Laura Adler. Uh, She is an environmental exposure expert. She's just is amazing. Um, Her brain is full of great information and actionable steps on how to limit our exposure. Um, without it being overwhelming. So I learned a ton with this interview and I know you guys will too. So stay tuned. Um, Please subscribe to the podcast if you want to be notified or hop on our mailing list. We'll send you out a notification just um, once a week to let you know that we have a new podcast out and give you a little background on what to expect. All right. Thanks again. And we'll see you back next week.